ACAST. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. What I tell a lot of my clients, especially my younger clients, is you, you, have, you have the talent, great. The talent truly is about 20 to 30% of it. The other 70 to 80% of it is networking, getting to know people, putting yourself out there, not being afraid to actually sell yourself and talk about your work and learning how to talk about your work. We need to talk about songs. Somebody has to make conversation. Hi, everyone. Friday, May 20th. This is the True Community Gathering. Yep, we're here again. I think it's the 106th consecutive week. We're here to provide a service to the community, the theater community, which was troubled and frustrated by shutdown. And when it first happened two years ago, April 17th, 2020, I opened up the room here so people could come and talk about what they were going through and talk about COVID things related to art and creating in, an is- in isolation and whatever else we could talk about. That's just to demonstrate the fact that I actually have COVID right now. So I hope I don't lose my voice. If I do, I'll have somebody jump in and, and cover for me. This is the meeting that everybody waits for in my group because I have a lot of playwrights in my group, in my community. We're a producer's organization. Those of you who don't know us, we actually teach people how to navigate the business of theater. And we focus a lot on producers, but we've welcomed a lot of writers and and actors and directors, but a lot of writers come into our, our community to network and meet each other and meet people that might be interested in helping them. We're all about helping each other. We're a community. That's what Theater Resources Unlimited is. So my writers are constantly saying, can we meet agents? Can we meet agents? Can we meet agents? And the answer is yes. But the answer today is we want to meet agents with the understanding that they're having as tough a time of it in this business as, as everybody else is. They have a job to do and COVID hasn't made it any easier. So as much as we like to think that Producers have magic wands that make our work happen, and agents have a magic wand and wave that, and suddenly we're successful. There's a lot of other things going on in the business that we need to be aware of. I think it's healthy to meet people on a human basis. I want you to meet these four agents with the understanding that (laughs) it hasn't been easy. Maybe I'm going to be wrong. Maybe it's going to turn out that they had a glorious two years in COVID. I don't think that's going to be the case. We'll see. So I want to say hello to Kate Bussert who is with Brett Adams Agency, Lucy Powis, who is with A3 Artists, Katie Gamelli, I hope I'm selling it, saying everybody's name right, Paladin Artists, and Bonnie Davis, who's also with Brett Adams. So ladies, welcome to True, first of all. I'm a playwright too, so I also get a good kick out of actually meeting agents. So I want you to tell us a little bit about your backgrounds though, and tell us how you came to become an agent And then we're going to move to other things later. But let's start with Kate Bussert. Sure. First of all, thank you for having us. It is fun to connect with people through the the omnipresence of Zoom. I've been an agent for over five years at Brad Adams Limited. I started as an assistant. Before that, I trained as a director of new plays. But what I loved about being a director of new plays was that you were constantly sort of translating between different disciplines. You were translating actor language into costume designer language. You were mediating between the writer and, you know, whoever else was trying to execute the vision. And when I became an agent, I found that that is at the heart of my practice as an agent. 
which is that you are a com communication conduit between your clients and anybody who wants to produce them or work with them. So for me, being an agent is like a constant practice of active listening. And that has been more true in the past couple of years than ever before. And that is how I sort of stay creatively in touch with everybody. And I really consider it to be a people business first. Yeah. And it's been a good, good ride. Okay. Thanks, Katie. Let's move to Lucy. Pa I'm just going in the order that I see you on my screen. <laughs> this is random. It's totally random. Lucy Powis. Hi, welcome. Thank you. And yeah, thank you for having us. I was born and raised in Toronto. I did my undergraduate degree there and I initially moved to New York City in 2015 to study dramaturgy. I did the MFA program at Columbia and I came out of that program really thinking that I would go down the sort of typical institutional dramaturgy role. I did some internships with theater companies or, or short-term contracts with theater companies in their artistic and literary departments, along with doing freelance dramaturgy and producing work. And I initially ended up at A3 in March 2019. It was then called Abrams Artist Agency. And I started there as an assistant, really thinking that it was going to be a job to pay my bills. It seemed very interesting. It seemed like a great learning experience. But I was lucky to be working as an assistant to two agents, one of whom is on this Zoom, who were also both very dramaturgical in their background. And I found that it was actually a job that felt like a really great combination of dramaturgy and producing. And so I started taking on clients in June of 2020, and it's been a really lovely past couple of years seeing how the skills that I built under other job titles can contribute to building relationships. Just, I just want to add that the one agent that I've always been friendly with for years is Beth Blickers. <laughs> and Beth, is, Beth is the common thread here. When I asked Beth to do, Beth did a conversation with us last year when she was really, really depressed about, about COVID and what was going on. And she, she almost didn't want to do it for me, but she turned out to be a wonderful, wonderful guest. And she, she's always wonderful. She, she can't help but be wonderful, even when she's depressed. And she was the one who, who suggested that I invite the four of you. So was, was Beth the other, one of the other people at, at A3, at Abrams that you, that you worked with? No, I didn't overlap with Beth. Katie was at A3 at the time. So I worked with her. Well, you said there were two of them. That's why Oh, no, I, I didn't. Ben Izo was, was the other person I worked okay. for, who is also a fantastic, very dramaturgical, lovely agent. So we'll, we'll expand the, the, the interview by saying, Katie Gamelli, friend of Beth Blickers and agent, tell us a little bit about yourself and about how, how you came to become an agent. Yeah, this is actually a great segue because I credit Beth with my being an agent, truly, almost single-handedly. I came to New York almost 18 years ago to go to college. I was an actor and a director. I graduated from Marymount Manhattan. I spent about five years after that doing the actor, singer, director thing. Quickly realized that it wasn't for me and that I didn't really want to, you know, work six jobs in order to pay my rent. So I actually got a job at Abrams Artist Agency at the time as the assistant to the head of their department, Sarah Douglas. And I had this sort of grand plan that I was only going to work there for a year and I was going to save some money, get some health insurance, and then I was going to go back to graduate school for directing. That was my, you know, whole plan. Can, I, can then, I just insert something here? Isn't Sarah Douglas sort of a legend? I mean, I think so. <laughs> it wasn't she, did she have a client in particular that everybody knows? She works with Maury Yeston. You might know him. He wrote Nine and Titanic the Musical. She's, she has an incredible list. Oh, yeah. She's, um, she's got an amazing list of clients. She, she, along with Beth, basically taught me everything I know about how to be an agent. But it was actually at a presentation at the Dramatist Guild where I saw a writer's presentation that I really took to. And Beth turned to me and said, you know, you could ask him to coffee, right? You know, you could take on some clients if you want. And I went, wait really? You mean I can work with writers that I'm passionate about and help their dreams come true, basically, not to sound corny about it. But then I started taking on clients about a year into the job. I was simultaneously building my roster while continuing to assist Sarah. And then I was promoted to an agent in 2016 or 17. It's all a little fuzzy now, but was, a, was an agent at A3 until the end of 2021. I left A3 in 2021, and I started working for Paladin Artists, where I am now. We are a brand spanking new boutique agency in LA and New York. 
I'm based here in New York, and really our goal is to build a well-rounded literary agency that feels familial, that is managerial in its approach. We have a huge music department that is very successful. We've got some really incredible clients like Janice Ian and Paula Cole and Judy Collins and also some up-and-coming singer-songwriters and rock groups. And they brought me in to start their theater department. So that's where I am now. I am only only been there for about five months. I'm actually looking to, to build the department. In addition to our music division, we have a theatrical touring department, branding and new media, and then we're going to be adding TV, film, and books. So I can talk more about that later, but that's, that's where I'm at. Well, thank you. Bonnie, your turn. Hi. Yeah, I think I have a similar story to everyone. I also did the acting thing for a few years. And, you know, I realized that what I was interested in was not myself in the theater, but was like the theater as a whole. And I was the person who people always asked for dramaturgical notes, who people who came to see like six shows a week, you know? And so I pivoted and I actually interned at Brett Adams a few years before I actually started working there while working my other jobs that I had had as an actor, which was like substitute teaching at New York City Public Schools. And Alexis Williams, who was at Brett Adams at the time, is like the reason I'm an agent because it was kind of one the first time that like someone really believed in me. And also the first time that I saw the way someone works, so like in a similar way that my mind works and see them thriving. And it made me be like, oh yeah, I can do that. So then a few years later, when a position opened at Brett Adams, I immediately left everything and came on board. And I also started as an assistant, but I also started bringing on clients We quickly, I think also because I had previously worked there. I think it was two months into working there that I brought, started bringing people on. Well, I think what I want to do, to, to be specific, I want to talk a little bit about shutdown and COVID. And if you see any changes in the way that, I think there are obvious things that have changed in the way, the way we do business now. And there are, there are all sorts of new contracts and there's new considerations. And was there, back in March of 2020, was there a time where, where you just didn't know what to do, where you just didn't, didn't know what, what, what to make happen? Or, I mean, I, re- I remember Beth's conversation about she had to undo contracts a lot. That was, that was what she spent the beginning of, of COVID doing. So any one of you want to, want to jump in and just talk a little bit about the COVID experience for you, and then we'll move to happier time, happier things later. But but let's let's just just address this because I want people to understand that COVID has had an impact. I um, mean, I will say one thing is like there was one positive aspect of the COVID experience in that I think like all of us. I think all of us were really working ourselves to the ground, and now I'm like doing it again. I said I would give myself a rest during the pandemic and not go back to working 80 hours a week, but look at what I'm doing. But I think that there is one thing in terms of, and something to be aware of, is that everyone on the administrative side of the theater industry is really, really like working and has very poor work-life balance. And I mean, I will say there was a positive thing in COVID in that I think everyone did get to rest for a second but but I think also I mean Kate I it's interesting because I think that the that the only thing that was keeping us going in March 2020 wasn't really any of the agency work and it was that we also ran a foundation Kate really runs a foundation and we're able to like give a bunch of emergency grants to artists but you know I think that actually in March 2020 it was really it was really great to me that I had this job because I felt like I could still do something. I could make sure like an artist got paid, you know? And that was like something when I think everyone was feeling like like helpless against the world. Any other views on this, Kate? Yeah, I mean, I will say it, we, there wasn't ever a point where there was nothing to do. There was a point at which a lot of what an agency does is sort of sort of based on this constant forward momentum. And when that momentum was interrupted, like, 
you know, like a lot of the sort of support that we give and that we maintain in our offices for our clients is like endless spreadsheets of like dates where everyone is supposed to be in residence at various theaters, dates and amounts of payments that are due to come in and when they're supposed to be in the mail and when we know they're late, you know, like where a contract is in process and how long it's been since we've had a response. All of those things are based on this idea that there's always forward momentum. And so when they're stopped being forward momentum, all of those systems like very quickly imploded because how can you track somebody's whereabouts if you have no idea where they're going to be in six months, if there's going to be something taking them there in six months, six months after that, you know, anything like that. So there was a point where, yeah, I mean, there was actually a lot of work to do. There's a lot of paperwork and sort of like the, the, the not fun stuff in the job, in my opinion, a lot of administrative stuff. And frankly, a lot of grief to handle because when you are the conduit of somebody's communication with the outside world. Like I remember early in the pandemic, just people writing me emails or calling me and saying, like telling me that 10 people in a day had lost their jobs. And then it was my job to let those 10 people know that they had lost work. And so sort of the sheer volume of that became pretty overwhelming. I think that's probably why Beth was so depressed. I mean, I certainly felt that. I think all of us probably did. So it was never, there was never nothing to do it was just that for a long time, there wasn't anything rewarding to do. And so it felt like we weren't doing much of anything. Katie, how about, how did, how was that for you? You, you yeah. actually were in, you were in transition during, during this. You, you changed, didn't you change agencies during COVID? No. Well, I, I only changed agencies about five months ago. So I was at a three for the majority okay. of, of what I would call the worst of the pandemic. And, you know, I remember I had so many spreadsheets for all the canceled productions. And I think just to sort of piggyback, I think off of what you're talking about, Kate, you know, I, you know, I had many playwrights who had world premieres that were supposed to happen in 2020, maybe five or six, all of them got canceled or postponed. The devastation I think that a playwright feels because I think anyone who's a writer knows how long it takes sometimes to get your work seen, to get your work produced. And unfortunately, some of those productions have never been rescheduled. So you're dealing with the aftermath of that. You're dealing with contracts and payments owed and just trying to keep track of everything. I mean, you know, we as agents, and I think I can probably speak for all of us here that we represent, for those of you who don't know, in addition to playwrights, we also represent directors, designers, composers, lyricists, pretty much everybody in the industry who's not an actor. So you have multiple types of clients working on different projects. All of a sudden, pretty much everyone's out of work. It was, for me personally, overwhelming, overwhelming to deal with that, overwhelming to then have to step in, not only, you know, as an agent doing what we do, but also in a way, as a therapist, as a friend to our clients, I think I spent the majority of 2020 just scheduling conversations with playwrights you know, encouraging them to keep going, to not give up on this business, to keep writing, to use this time to be human beings, to use this time to get, get virtual coffees with people so you can stay connected. And I think that that in a way kept me going as an agent, but, you know, I can't pretend that it wasn't difficult. And, you know, our revenue as agents, we take 10% of everything our clients make. So all of a sudden we went from like, great profitability to like not great profitability <laughs> and like barely making what we should be making to stay afloat. And, and from the agency point of view, because not from the individual, but from the agency point of view, I'm sure it was very difficult to keep the agency agencies running. I'm sure I'm sure they got through because of PPP, pay, payroll protection plan loans. There was one in 2021 and 2021. That's what, one of the things that helped get, keep us going as well. And I'm sure that there were other other forms of, of, of assistance that the agency itself was getting so that it could actually keep you on. Was there a, was there a, a point where you guys were furloughed or, or, or were you, did you have re reduced hours or how, did it affect your, your workload? It sounds like you still had a ton to do. Kate and I were never furloughed, but we didn't get bonuses, which did, which ends up usually being about a third of our income. Oh. Um, so it had an impact, definitely. Yeah, I mean, I would say, I think Katie got it spot on that it definitely didn't affect our workload, but it affected our income. And it, it felt 
weird for me at some points to be talking through people the loss of through that loss of work and going to bed at night and thinking I don't know if I'm going to be employed next week because we did see particularly since I was an assistant for the first three months of the pandemic assistants were the first people to lose their jobs at agencies and I remember having a very candid conversation with my boss very early on who said you know I have no idea what they're going to do and so I feel very grateful knock on wood, she have been kept, but there was certainly a lot of uncertainty, a lot of restructuring, and, you know, a lot of looking at competitors and going, okay, well, if that person lays off all their assistants, what are we going to do? And yeah, there was definitely, I mean, we were not immune to the uncertainty plagued by the industry for sure. And I think that only felt amplified by having to make all those calls on an everyday basis to other people losing their work. It was, yeah, not, not a great few months. Yeah. Yeah, also too, at A3, you know, they kept everybody on for all of 2020, which pretty much all of 2020, which was amazing. They did do a first, a small round of cuts in the fall of 2020, I think it was. And then another round, I think in the fall of 2021. But, you know, it was, it was, I think we could probably all agree. It, it was a time of great uncertainty and I can only speak for myself in saying that there were moments where I absolutely considered doing something else. And I feel like everybody probably also had that thought at one point in time or another, which I think is natural. So with the, yeah, with the also, I was gonna say with the, with the, with the move that we all made to into virtual, didn't you have a lot of adjustments to make in terms of contracts and in terms of how you would negotiate? And can you talk a little bit about, about what changed in terms of your actual negotiating and the actual contracts? I mean, it was completely new territory. You know, you saw the odd thing on streaming, but I think in thinking about all those areas that Katie mentioned we represent, we were all of a sudden negotiating. Well, what happens to, you know, normally it says in contracts, if you're doing something for a designer, this these designs can only be used for this in-person theater production. And so what happens when we're all of a sudden looking to do something that is going to be streamed? Or what is a lighting designer's job if you're doing a Zoom show for playwrights? how do you license a play for streaming? And, and those were all conversations that no one had really had the answer to. And I think in a way it was sort of exciting to be, you, to have carte blanche with the rest of the industry and to have these conversations with general managers, with writers about, you know, okay, how do we contract for this? As time went on, unions then stepped in and, you know, started to really regulate that, which I think will only help the industry moving forward in that people are still doing streaming work or, or experimenting with different media but yeah, it was, it was a period of uncertainty in ways that could sometimes be very frustrating and could sometimes be really exciting because it's not very often that I think you get to reinvent the wheel and, and also just accept that you don't know what you're doing in the nicest way possible. I had so many phone calls with people who had been in the business for decades where we just all went, okay, we don't know what this is, so let's figure it out together and, and really try to create the way in which we want to work in a more conscious way. Was that how it was for the, for, for the rest of you? Well, I can say, I mean, in terms of streaming, like, you know, a lot of the stuff that we did pre-pandemic actually that involved the internet was me telling people to take it off the internet. You know, it was like, no, you're not allowed to record that and put that on the internet without paying for it. No. So it was, it was certainly a mental shift for myself. And I think for a lot of our clients as well, who were certainly on board with that, they were like, I don't want people putting things on YouTube. I don't want people taking unauthorized videos, you know? And it's this idea that the internet is generally a place where many things are for free or entertainment at least feels free. Like Netflix is designed so that you pay for it, but it feels free because you just go to the website and click on and there's like a thousand things at your fingertips, right? The theater is not designed that way. The theater is designed for you, you pay for a, a period of time that is dedicated to the thing that you are about to interact with and that's the end of it. So there's like sort of an existential question about how does those how do those two things interact with one another and I think that was certainly tough for me to like wrap my head around and I think hard to adjudicate how an artist is paid fairly for something that was intended to be live theatrical ended up being on the internet for a period of time, you know, those kinds of things. I think we've started working it out now and there are things that start to feel more industry standard or feel more fair. But in the beginning it was like, well, what is it, what's it cost? And therefore what is it worth? And what does that mean? And I think that at that time we were also like all pooling information together. 
And I mean, I, I remember being, seeing like an email from like play scripts on what their streaming language and being like, hey, why don't we just steal this for our new template? You know, like, I mean, I think that, and then really, really being in constant communication with the unions on where their discussions were. And I mean, I think that, yeah, I mean, it was totally new territory. And I'm glad that we now, I think, have much more solidified standards around virtual. But it was like about six months of everyone kind of making it up as they went. Yeah, I kind of yeah. thought it, it must have been like that. Katie, yeah. I was just going to say the the designers union, USA 829, they actually put together a COVID rider that, thank goodness, that essentially, you know, put new media language together for live streams. And it's actually still active, I think, at least until the end of the summer or maybe the end of this year. And, and that really helped because there was a while where I know a lot of us were just kind of wandering around, like wondering, how are we going to do this? What's the right language? How do we protect our clients' work in this new climate that we're all just sort of navigating for the first time? So that was really helpful. The other thing I'll say too, is like, for me, I had to sort of redefine what, what it meant to be an agent during this time because I was not operating in the way that I was accustomed to in terms of conversations with theaters, trying to get plays produced, trying to find opportunities. I had to kind of think outside the box and, and go, okay, what are some other ways that I can get my clients, help get my clients jobs, help them make some income during this time while not necessarily, you know, having them step step inside of a theater. And so I actually had clients that were working in audio drama and podcasting. And I had a couple of clients that were hired to write for VR projects, which is a world that I had no idea about. And so I kind of had to learn, like, I remember I spent several months just kind of like reading different podcast contracts and trying to understand, you know, what that meant and how to negotiate it. And so I felt like we had to kind of be more creative in some, in some regard because we had no other choice. So I just thought I would mention that too, because that, that was a big part of it for me, at least was sort of learning other businesses in a way and, and trying to navigate those as well. well I'm going to ask you the, the question that, oh, what, Kate, you, 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 I, I know you wanted to say something, go, go for it. Oh, I, I was just going to bounce off of what Katie said and just say for the group to know, because I think it's important that because agents are not lawyers. We don't like none of us on this zoom went to law school. Some do. And some people come through an entertainment law background and end up as agents. But most of us come, the four of us came through a, a practitioner's background, dramaturgy, acting, directing, anything like that. And so a lot of what we rely on is collectively bargained agreements within the union. And I'll amplify to say that the designers union was really exemplary in in showing a lot of leadership and being really fast on the forefront in terms of collective bargaining the new horizon here and then so collective bargaining is one aspect of it and then the other aspect of it is basically past precedent so we all within our agency's files have stacks and stacks of previous contracts and we can compare any new draft that comes in with the last thing we had at that theater company or at a, a comparable company and say, oh, these terms are the same and therefore they are fair, right? It's not that we have the full entertainment law background to do all of that from scratch, but with the help of all of those things that already exist in the world that create that precedent that everybody participates in, that's how we determine how to move forward and negotiate appropriately. So in terms of this thing with like streaming and podcasts and VR, it's like, there's no precedent. And so where do we step, you know? So that's, that's a lot of, I think what Katie is mentioning and all of us we're dealing with. Okay. I'm going to go there. Did any of you get caught in the tennis match between SAG-AFTRA and equity? No, because we don't we... represent actors. So yeah, but, but in, in, in negotiating for your writers, producers were finding that, that, Equity and SAG after were fighting for for about a year before they finally came to a, an agreement about who was who was going to have the domain over over the contracts. So I would have thought that it would have affected you, but you're lucky that it didn't. It made the rest of us crazy. What affected us more, I think, was equities taking forever to come to consensus around safety standards. I think was was something that really affected us, and there. 
and they're just not responding to a lot of theaters when theaters would submit a plan. I mean, something that we were doing where we were, tr- we were trying to, in 2020, pitch this outdoor socially distanced show as part, part of a, as part of an initiative to get out the vote ahead of the 2020 election. And we had 30 theaters committed at one point in summer 2020. And I think only about seven of them were, six, six of them were able to actually do the in-person productions, which is still a lot. <laughs> like in- yes, that was amazing for the time. It was amazing. It was amazing for the time. But some of them, like it was in areas where the COVID incidence was very low and where they really were following all the rules, but Actors Equity just never responded to their requests. I'm glad to, I'm glad to know that someone else had some frustration. <laughs> yeah, was, I mean, it was very, for, of- for producers, it was, it was, it was nightmarish. We just, nobody totally. knew what to do. Totally. I mean, this also kind of ties into what we were talking about furloughs. I know everyone mentioned their own personal experience with furloughs, but being on the flip side of it, a lot of theater companies staff were furloughed. And with that went an immediate wipeout of the institutional knowledge. So people who normally would have been in charge of being the point person to communicate with somebody at the regional branch of the union, you know, because it's like, the, the everyone's got their point person regionally and each theater knows who that person is like a lot of those people were just completely not available right and i think there were probably furloughs at actors equity and within the unions as well because they rely on dues and nobody was paying dues because nobody was working and so it's like you know the those furloughs were just as impactful as the furloughs within our own companies because it impeded our ability to participate in the full process of our jobs. Okay, well I'm going to I'm going to move to to the to the most popular question of of any of these conversations which is how do you get an agent? Katie, uh, you you took people to coffee. <laughs> we, we love that. Uh, that was that was you who said you that then Beth say oh, take them to coffee. So how do you find your, how do you find the people that you represent? We are under the impression, many of us who don't have agents, which is most of us, that it's very hard to get an agent. And we often are told that you rarely can get an agent until you have a production that's ready. So can you dispute that or can you confirm that? Or tell us what it's been like for you. I will say, I mean, I think the thing, someone doesn't have a script that's really production ready. I'm not sure how useful an agent will be. And another thing is that agents, yes, a lot of what we do is cold submissions, but it's not where we're most successful. So where we're most successful is when we're putting our spider web of connections across an artist's spider web of connections and figuring out how they work together and building off of existing things. So if there's nothing to build off of, I'll just be honest that we're just often not useful. So that's kind of where it is. And it's not like an agent, and I think there's also a misconception that an agent is like a door to to having a career. And while I think that we can be immensely useful, I don't think that that is necessarily true. I think that you, you, both your work, but also the connections you're making are the door and an agent can be a partner in helping to build off of what you've already started to build for yourself. Anybody else want to add to that in terms of just, you know, think, think in terms of the, of the writers out here. We're, we're all saying, oh, how do we get an agent? What do we do? Invite, do, do we invite, do you go to, to pieces, to plays when people have productions? Do you, do you come to see them? I think that's a great, yeah, that's a great way to, to get to know people's work is of course to read it, but it's always lovely to hear things out loud, particularly musicals where it just that's so foundational to the experience. And I would say what really catches my eye is people who reach out and, and know why they're reaching out. There are so many of us and every agency is different and every agent at every agency is different. And I, you know, get a lot of, of cold emails and there's a serious difference between someone who I can tell is just looking for someone and has sent the same email to 10 different people and someone who really looked and said, okay, well, Lucy represents these people or this is her background or I really like that Katie's an agency with a lot of music or that Bonnie did this, you know, it's just it's like thing, any collaborator, you want there to be a, we're sorry, go ahead. The same thing we tell people about reaching out to producers. 
Don't don't yeah, just don't send don't, don't send an, a, a BCC email to a hundred producers. It's not going to work. Yeah. No, don't don't do it. Really, I mean, the, going to this panel is a great first step. Maybe one of our energies really appeals to you, and and that's a great thing to know. And I do really think you want the process of finding an agent to be one where you're really getting to know each other and and making sure that you can see a long term relationship with each other because that's what it becomes it's a very intimate one where you you're sharing a lot with each other and talking to each other very frequently and you want that to be someone who you feel really great about who you really think has a, a good mind about theater and and a good mind about your work and inviting someone to your work to read out to coffee whatever it is that's a, that's a great way to do it and and I would encourage everyone to really ask the questions of potential agents about how they work and and why they do what they do to make sure that you feel good about their answers. Don't don't just sign with someone for the sake of of doing it. Katie, what gets you ex excited about about a writer who you might, or or an artist who you might represent? I, I, we don't have to limit it to writer. Yeah, no, I think I think actually a lot of what Lucy said really resonates. I mean, for me, I I mean, I rarely. I rarely like, we don't take unsolicited submissions. So if I get like a cold email from someone, I, I, I'll be honest, I have such a huge volume of email and, and things that are coming in. I don't necessarily always pay attention to it. We also have somebody that sort of funnels through those types of emails. But one thing that I do really appreciate, whether somebody writes me because they have a friend in the business that you know, recommended me to them, or I have a producer that connects me to an artist is someone who does their research. And I think Lucy touched upon this a little bit is, you know, if somebody comes to me and they say, hey, I noticed that you represent a lot of, you know, multi-hyphenate artists and that, you know, you tend to gravitate towards queer stories or female centric stories or whatever it is. And I see you represent these two people and I love their work. And I think maybe, you know, we'd be a good match. That to me shows that you've done research on, on me and who I represent, and that's going to make me pay attention in a different way. Rather than, hey, you're an agent just in the business, read my play, that's not interesting to me. I want to know why you think we should be a good match. For me personally, I, I kind of just touch upon this, but I, I gravitate towards writers, stories, characters who are underrepresented, perspectives we don't normally hear art that really pushes the boundaries. And I also want to see that an artist is hustling on their own, that they're making their own connections, that they're submitting their plays to various festivals or awards or residencies, that they're connecting to people in the business, that they're going to see theater, all of these things, because I think, I don't know if it was Bonnie or Kate, that touched upon like I think some people think we ha we wave this magic wand. That was me. <laughs> oh, okay. So and and we don't. I I sort of look at agents as an extension of the client that we represent. We're sort of double the advocacy. Also, apologies if you can hear the thunder rumbling in the background. It's storming quite loudly here in New York. I think that, you know, that that is something I want to see that you're doing the work, that you're not just writing plays, but that you're networking, that you're attempting to network, that you're attempting to put your work out there. Because what I tell a lot of my clients, especially my younger clients, is you you have you have the talent. Great. The talent truly is about 20 to 30 percent of it. The other 70 to 80 percent of it is networking, getting to know people, putting yourself out there, not being afraid to actually sell yourself and talk about your work and learning how to talk about your work. So, yeah. Yeah, I will also add on top of exactly, Katie, hit it on the head. And to say, you know, when we're talking about the things that excite us in a writer, each of us has an individual and specific taste that we are bringing with us out into the world. So we're ambassadors of all the people that we represent, but we also are cultivating our own, like, I hate to call it a brand because I don't think that that really encapsulates like really what I think it sort of simplifies what the process is and what the creativity of it is. But like people know between me and Bonnie, even though we work together at the same agency and we even share a lot of clients that like to very simplify it, Bonnie's taste is more weird than mine. And mine is more emotional than hers. Like that's this, that's like the most simple way of putting it out there. But if we are sent something or go to see something, 
and it doesn't resonate with us, we will not be good agents. And having an agent who has signed you, who does not love your work is probably harmful to you in the long run, right? And it's also hard on the agent because it means that you're doing a lot of grunt work and a lot of the work is is often very boring and repetitive until something it hits. And if you don't love it, there's no reason why you're gonna do it. So I know a lot of times like you'll send things out and you'll get feedback that says like, it was a beautiful play, but it, I just didn't fall in love with it. Or it was a very well-made piece, but it just didn't, you know, whatever with me. And I know that that stuff sounds really trite and it sounds like we're blowing you off, but it's actually the most honest that we can be, which is to say, you've done a great job. And it, the fact that it didn't spark something within me doesn't mean that your work isn't good, but it means that I'm not right to be the advocate. So I just want to put that out there because I know that it's really hard to get a lot of those emails. Yeah, I want to I want to piggyback on that because it's like because I will see I will see and I probably and in terms of like how we find clients, I there is one week this month where I saw 14 shows in one week, but I usually see like five to seven shows each week and I usually read five to ten plays. So I, so that's, so, and so that means that I'm absorbing a lot of art and I often read or see things that I think are really well-made, really well-crafted, but aren't at the center of my taste, which is like specifically underrepresented voices tackling social issues in a way that is different than a traditional linear drama, like satire, fantastical, something like that. And if it's not that then I'm probably not the best advocate because that's what I know what to talk about. And also I probably won't remember to bring your play up in meetings. Right? I want to so, speak to what Helen put in the chat and, and Bob had addressed earlier. The You need to have a production to have an agent, I think is an overblown version of what I think Katie mentioned earlier, which is I think you need to have relationships and drive to have an agent. I do not think you need to have a production and for someone to get a production without an agent is is wonderful. I have not heard of that happening in a very long time. In fact, I was talking to someone at a grad school recently about how she barely, her MFA playwrights barely graduate without finding an agent because people are signing earlier and earlier in careers. I, I would very much debunk the rumor that you need to have a production offer to have an agent. I think you, what we're all getting at is you can't rely on an agent to build your career from the ground single-handedly. It's always a team effort. If both people are hustling and working together and communicating well, that is what is going to build a career. But no, I would definitely say production offer in hand is not something I would ever expect from a client. Yeah, I think I think what I think we need is a script that's production ready. Rather, like that we can send out for production because I'm not going to send out someone's first draft. Yes. Yes. And you don't want us to either because all of us, I think all of us have worked in literary departments of theaters. Katie, have you? No. Okay. So three quarters of us have worked in literary departments. And so we have a, a big familiarity with the databases that they keep. And so somebody will write their coverage report and it'll go into the database of the theater company and it's in there forever. So if you go back and you look at something from 10 years ago and it was your first draft and someone wrote really sloppy, you know, this is unfinished, like that feedback follows the play. So, you know, obviously being known as somebody who revises is a very good thing also, but you just like, you also want to be thoughtful about an agent is sort of is going to send things to people. And if it's not ready to be sent to people, then you don't want those things out there. I want to open up to the room. First of all, I want to remind everybody in the room that if you haven't already put your email address into the into the chat, I have no, we'll have no idea that you're here. So do that because I'm going to send follow-up. I'm going to send the chat as a follow-up. I'm going to send any, any additional comments that anybody might have as a follow-up next week. So make sure that we know you're here. Do you know how to do your reactions do you know what your reactions window looks like do you know how to click that and then see a hand raise so i can see your virtual hand raise anybody who has a question and somebody must have a question at this point i've got a room full of agents you've been asking me for two years start asking questions guys okay here well, we go. i saw one who said early early on that they asked how agents build relationships with producers and we can speak to that while people walk or who put their questions in the chat i will say one of the best ways that I build relationships is through actually having a project with them that we bring to 
production, mostly because agents are overworked and producers are overworked and people at theater companies are overworked. And so one of the best ways to get to know each other is through working together. And it also sort of teaches you about who they really are. It's like, is this somebody who in the middle of a stressful situation speaks kindly of somebody? Is this somebody who in the middle of a conflict between creatives takes the time to listen? Is this somebody who doesn't want to deal with it? Is this somebody who, you know, and you get to know the real, the, the real way that people are in th- going through those things. And not okay. to say that every production has some contention in it, because sometimes they don't. And also getting to know somebody through an amazing production where everything went really well, creates a great relationship that you then continue to just build off of. So generally, it's through the work. Yeah, I want to piggyback on, on something you said. I had, a, I've had, I've been doing this for 20 years, 29, 29 years. We had Beth and a couple of other agents on a panel about 10, 15 years ago. And it was an, it was an evening where I had agents and producers come and, and speak to each other. And the, the agents all said, you know, we build relationships with regional theaters, but we never build relationships with, with producers. And we wish, we wish we could. So has that changed? Cause that was, that was a, a, a big issue. And, and just the fact that I was introducing Beth and, and it was like three other agents to a couple of producers was a big deal because they, they didn't know producers. Do you, so you have relationships with producers now. You, you cultivate them? Anybody, yeah, yeah, I'll just I'll just jump in and say, yes, absolutely. I, I think that it, it's always been that way, actually. I mean, when I, I mean, at least all the agents I know that I learned from, including Beth and Sarah, they've they've all had relationships with commercial producers for the majority of their career. I think how you develop those relationships is through honestly people that you work with. I had a lot of agents who introduced me to other commercial producers, clients that already had relationships with producers that introduced me to them. A lot of designers that I work with have worked on commercial projects and that was a great introduction to some producers that I didn't know. And then I could follow up and say, hey, do you wanna grab lunch or do you wanna have grab coffee? I'd love to learn more about your taste and what you're working on and your aesthetic. And then when I was coming up as an as like a coordinator and first sort of making my way into a full-time agent, I would do a lot of cold emails. Like I would just reach out to people and say, Hey, I'm building my, my, my roster. I work at a three. I'd love to get to know more about you and the, the work that you're producing. And so I think there's multiple ways that we've been able to generate and foster relationships with, with various commercial producers. I think similarly in the, in sort of the same way that we foster those relationships with theaters. At first for me, it was getting to know literary managers, assistants, assistants to artistic directors. Then I I kind of made my way up the chain of like, okay, I'm going to get to know an artistic director at this theater and, and started sending them plays and hearing what they responded to and having phone calls and having meetings. And in the same way, it's like, it comes from a human place. I think Bob, you talked about that earlier is like what sort of connects us on the human level. And for me, I try to find that same sort of human connection with any producer or theater company that I'm reaching out to or trying to work with. What makes people tick? What resonates with them artistically? And then it can kind of take off from there. Just to piggyback on that, I think also what Kate was talking about in like terms of people's like brand, right? I think like part of it is also figuring out what like getting to know producers and figuring out what they like and how that aligns with what you like in terms of what resonates with them. And I think that another thing I will say in terms of commercial producers versus nonprofits, I do think that we tend to do a less of a high volume of submissions to commercial producers than nonprofits simply because most commercial producers are only working on a few projects at a time, often one project. Oh, at yeah, a time. Say whereas, often one. whereas whereas nonprofits will have a season. So there's just much more reason and we don't want to over inundate commercial producers if it's if it's not a perfect fit. Uh, I'm gonna move to the questions. I'm gonna reward the per- one person who found her 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 reaction app and, and, and has a virtual hand raise. So Christy Thomas, I invite you to, to ask your question and then I'll go into the, into the questions in the chat. You know, Bob, when you're a teacher, I'm all about the hand raise. So <laughs> I was like, hand raise, I know that one. So I put it in the chat, but I think what, what I have found is the challenge is that I've, I've had plays produced 
multiple plays. One was produced at a festival in New York. I'll be back in New York again this summer with my second play being produced at this festival and also as the resident playwright. But it's like, it sounds like, it sounds like it's an easy thing to get an agent once you've had a play produced, but not to someone who doesn't have an agent who has had a play produced. So I think it's like, in maybe even in preparation for me coming to New York, being the resident playwright, having a show being produced, what would, would any of you suggest as a, you should do this if like cold emails, you know, don't get attention and I may or may not have a connection to, to invite an agent on a personal level. Cause I, I'm good with doing the work I, I just don't know that I know what the work is that I need to do. Well, that's a good question. But I mean, I think like also what are your collaborators on the project who runs the festival and what are their connections? And how do you strategize with everyone who is involved with the project in terms of inviting people and giving a personal thing? I also think that an invitation to a reading is a little different for a cold submission to me. And I think that's partly because say, if I know the theater festival that it's going to, and I've been to it. So like, say if it was like, say at like the fire this time festival, which I love, right? I, I would go, I will like probably go to stuff there without being invited because mm. I have liked things previously. And I like know that's something that I keep on my radar, right? So I think like, I think that that's because there is an extra, level layer of if if we have seen something previously there and liked mm -hmm. it we may know that like say the artistic director's taste is aligned with ours okay let's see sh sh who is it paul smith asked how useful is it to have showcases of your work and i think we've we've sort of touched on that basically it's it's very it's very useful because it gives you the opportunity of seeing it rather than having to read it i don't know if there's anything more you want to say about that while i'm looking for other questions ah here's a sensitive one how much is ageism a factor when you look at new writers? Do you look at a new author in their 60s as someone who was too old to have had the longevity of the relationship you ideally seek? No. No. I don't, I don't think that's, it's not the, it's not somebody's age or the, I hear, I hear what you're saying, the longevity of the relationship. Right. That's probably tied to something we said earlier, which is that ideally the relationship between an agent and, an, and a client stretches for years, which is longer generally than the relationship that a client has with a theater company where it's like, okay, we produce your play in this season and then we have to produce somebody else's play next season. So that relationship goes sort of dormant for a while. Like with an agent, you go through really good stuff. You go through really bad stuff. You go through periods of boring, you go through periods of busy. And it's very rewarding to have a long relationship with somebody, but like keep in context, like, I mean, you know, I'm still relatively young as an agent. And so most of my longest relationships are like six years and those are very meaningful to me. And I find them very deep and fulfilling. So it's not like you can't have something that is still a meaningful and present relationship in the duration of five years or something like that. But when you're talking, oh, go Bonnie. Oh, sorry. I just wanted to say, I mean, I will say the one thing is that what I would say would affect is like if you've been in the business for a very long time and have been trying to get things and been sending things to theaters and there hasn't been a response and basically your work has been sent to every theater in the country. I will say that is a situation and that might have to do with age, but I think that has to do with how long you've been in the industry right if you've been in the industry for a very long time and people aren't responding to your work then i probably won't be able to make it better and i'll i'm just going to be frank about that but i think that but but in terms of like age i mean i just brought on a client who's in their late 70s you know so good to hear good to hear <laughs> Yeah, so, I'll just piggyback yeah. off of that and say that if the work is strong, if you have something to say 
with what it is that you're writing and you're also hustling, it doesn't matter what age you are. In fact, you may bring more life experience to what it is that you're putting out there. And I would never discount that. I would never discount anyone because of their age. I've also seen, I read a 19 year old's play recently that blew me away. And if you, if, if I had read that blindly, not knowing that that person was 19, I would have thought they were in their forties probably. Mm -hmm. So in my opinion, age has nothing to do with it. It's about the talent and the hustle. Also, I am, please, please forgive me. I hope I'm not being rude, but I do have to jump off and catch a train that I cannot miss. I just want to thank you so much for having me. And um, Bob, if there are other questions that funnel through, please feel free to email me. They're, they're funneling already. <laughs> I'm in the Katie. same boat as Katie, sadly, not with the train, but also with the out at 6.30. But okay. yes, happy to answer. I'm for sorry, I should have asked thank you whether you, you had a hard out at 6.30. Uh, normally, I, I, I would... I would have respected that. I, I just, not well this week. So, I hope you feel better. And yes, hope better. Kate and Bonnie, do you have time for the for the additional questions or or should we call it a day? We can, we can stay for a couple more questions. Okay, so let's do Michael Michael DiGitano. Hi. Yeah, I liked, I liked what I heard about the age because I spent 25 years writing and producing television in Hollywood and movies and features. And I decided one day, I'm not, I don't want to do that anymore. I want to come to New York and, and write theater. So I keep hearing the term emerging playwrights or emerging artists. What is it? What is emerging? It seems like that always is like age, not experience. And I'm just curious how you feel about the term emerging artists. Because I have, you know, three, I wrote in, in five years back, I wrote three musicals and three plays. And you know, so so, what does emerging mean to you? Yeah, emerging is is one of those weird, squishy terms where I think some people find it very useful, and many people find it very unuseful. And there's also a question of at what point has somebody emerged? You know, there's like this very amorphous period where it's like they're emerging, they're emerging, they're emerging, and then it's like all of a sudden somebody's like famous and you're like okay that one's emerged but a year ago she was emerging you know so it's it's not very useful other than to use as a shorthand when you're talking to a theater company or a producer to say this is somebody who you haven't heard of yet but I also think that you know when you're using catch-all phrases like that you can be more persuasive by using different and more active verbs you know like your story in particular about the career that you've already had and the decision to write plays instead is much more interesting than saying emerging playwright, you know? And so it's one of those things where like, I think it's used a lot in emerging playwrights festivals, you know, it's like an umbrella term. But when you're talking about your spe yourself specifically, I would say you don't need to use it. Use other more interesting things. Okay, so we have a little, uh, I'll try to go through these quickly. Uh, Eric, do you have a, qu a quick question? Eric Rothman? We'll see if it's quick. The question is, there's a lot of activity now with experiments and activity in developing extended reality, virtual reality theater of a lot of different kinds, avatar theater, live theater recorded or, or broadcast in VR. Do you have any interest or do you know people who have any interest? What is the attitudes that you hear about what's going on in the virtual reality and extended reality experiments and productions? You know, I'll be honest, I've heard more interest from the writer end than from the producerial end in that. I mean, we certainly have some writers who have been doing virtual reality, but I think that at least in terms of like theaters, I think that while we don't know that world, they also don't know that world. So there is a limited amount of people doing that world. Now I have seen a couple of things, but it's essentially when we're like looking at things it wouldn't, it probably wouldn't be theaters. It would probably be people who are like introducing themselves to playwrights for the first time. Yeah, it would also be like more in the sort of tech space, I think, than in the live theater space. Like certainly there is VR storytelling and VR world building and all of those things like already exist in a world of entertainment that the theater had heretofore not really intersected with. And now it's starting to bleed together, but it's definitely much more present in the non-theater world of entertainment. And I think also, I think that there was a moment when some theaters were flirting with that kind of stuff 
like in 2020, but I think that like tr at least traditional theaters tend to be kind of over the virtual moment. <laughs> Like, I think they also realized how expensive it is. Yeah. I mean, it's not, yeah. it's not like and an it's, easy shortcut. Um, and it's expensive for audiences too. Like, do you know how much a VR headset costs? A friend <laughs> wanted me to watch their VR show and I couldn't. <laughs> well, it's not, just to be clear, it's not just the performance in theaters. It's now live performance and drama and comedy and so on. It's the, it's the, it's the content, not necessarily for a physical theater. So yes, there's very little in physical theaters, but there's a whole new genre of dramatic live performance entertainment that takes place not in theaters. I, I, want, to, I want to get to a couple other comments yeah. and just capsulize them quickly. We have a couple of questions that have to do with hyphenates. The question seems to be, are, are you more or less interested in somebody who is both a, a writer for theater and for TV and for film and for books? Or My, my assumption would be that that, that that might require different agents for different areas. Do you focus, so you focus on- That's pretty much it. Yeah. yeah, I wish, I, I wish Lucy were still here because she's at, I think the, out of the four of us, the biggest agency that has more arms. The agency that Bonnie and I are at I mean, we're like theatrical creatures in our blood. We have people who have transitioned over and we help them find managers and stuff like that in the TV world. But we don't have within our company TV agents who we can call and delegate to. And the thing so. is, look, we can like cold email like mm -hmm. novel publishers or or like some film production studios. But since we haven't been in that world, we're probably not that much better than you cold emailing them because we haven't built those relationships. So we can do our best to try to help our artists in those worlds. But what is really the most help is getting someone who actually knows what they're doing in those fields. Yeah. Totally. And we're not precious about it either. Like Bonnie and I work very well with lots and lots of different kinds of TV managers and stuff like that. I would be thrilled to work with somebody who also had an, an agent for book publishing. Like that would be, I think that would be interesting to me. I would find that really exciting. Well, like, but like, I think that essentially whether you have an agent for book publishing, like I don't think it will necessarily affect or like have done this stuff in other media. It doesn't necessarily affect your work in theater unless, unless in turn, unless there is like a famous title that you wrote that you want to like use, have use the underlying rights to perpetuate, if that makes sense. Thanks, that's great. Larry Daggett, I'm gonna re reword. He wants to know, is it preferable to have a live production or a video of a reading? And the answer is, is live production, but let's just say, what is, are there circumstances in which a video of, 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 a, of a reading is useful for you? Have you ever actually had somebody submit a video of, of a production and, and it interested you? Yes, but I mean, look, like anyone who works in the theater knows how to read a play and knows how to see it in their head and do the imaginative work necessary. If the video is better than us trying to imagine what you've put on the stage into reality, then awesome. Like if it really shows us your vision and the technical aspects of it allow that vision to come through, awesome. If the sound is shitty, if it's way too far away, you can't see anybody's face. If there's like audience stuff in the background that's distracting, then no, then it's not, then it's not properly executing your vision. There were some things that we did send over videos that really worked, but a lot of those were they like put some extra time and thought into really being intentional about what the video was doing as a communication medium. You know, like we had somebody who had a piece that was inherently multimedia that used a lot of sound clips and video clips. And he was able to really incorporate that in a way where the technology was very fluid and felt very present in the video. But there are other things where it's like, if it's a wide shot of a musical and the sound is like, a little bit wonky, then you're really not getting what the writer has intended. Probably a single ca camera video of, of, a, of a production is not going to read, read as anything exciting or not as exciting as the live performance. Yeah, 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 not as exciting as the live performances. There are situations in which a video is better than a script. I tend to think one person shows with a lot of characters 
I really would prefer to see a video than see this than read the script specifically to see if the if the actor is able to delineate the characters in a way that makes the story communicated correctly or like something that like has like certain sets sound design elements that are really vital. I also, I mean, I don't think there's ever been a situation in which I'd taken on a musical off of a libretto. I need to hear songs, you know. And a, de- a good demo would, would, would satisfy that. Yeah. yeah. As opposed to a recording of a, of a performance of the musical with one camera, which is almost, right. in, almost guaranteed not to, not to communicate what, what it needs to communicate. Let's say if you made a special music video to advertise this production, that would be actually probably a great sample. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to let you, you, <laughs> you guys go at the, finally. Um, thank you for staying extra time. I appreciate it. Sure, also, happy to meet you. Oh, at the at the end of of these, like, suddenly people start asking questions. It's like ask questions, ask questions, ask questions. And once we're ready to leave, it's like oh, all the questions get asked. Sure. I'm sorry that I've missed any questions that were that were asked. Everything will be in the chat. So any questions that you asked that were not answered, if I if I'm able to, I will try to find answers for you to those questions. So Kate and Bonnie, thank you so much. And thanks to Beth, who's not here, for for introducing me to you guys. It was it was a great conversation. I I enjoyed having you very very much. I hope that people in the room got a better view of what the business is really like and what the realities are of having an agent and the possibilities are of having an agent, and the reasons for having an agent. Because sometimes we don't really think through the real reason why why we need an agent. Your information has been very useful, and I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say final words to the room. Thank you for being with us, everybody. We do this this is our 106th consecutive week of doing this. I do it as a community service. I do it with COVID, whatever, you know, I just do it. And you're here with us. And I'm very honored that you that you spend time with me on Fridays. We'd love to have you in the room and being part of the conversations, being able to ask questions and all that. So email me at T-R-U-N-L-T-D at AOL.com. That's T-R-U-N-L-T-D at AOL.com. And we can put you on the Zoom list and you can come be with, be with us on Fridays at five o'clock Eastern time. Also, this is free <laughs> or it's pay what you can. And sometimes pay what you can means something. So if you can pay something and keep us running and so keep supporting us, I'd be very grateful. If you can't, you're welcome to be with us anyway, but go to truedonate, trudonate.com. That's the easy that's the easy one. That that redirects to our more complicated URL. Pay what you can, support us if you can, and keep coming on. Keep doing this again. Keep going. So that's it. We need to talk about something. We need to talk about anything at all. Ever thought about starting your own podcast? Do you have a business or a message you want to share with the world? Well, now it's easier than ever with Electricast. Hi, I'm Mark Netter. And I'm Peter Rafelson. We're the founders of Electricast Media. Whether you want to start a new podcast or already have one, join Electricast to grow your audience, monetize your content, and build your community. With our simple sign-up, you get free promotion, world-class analytics, premium ads, and personal support. Go to Electricast.com and join our community today. Electricast. Transform your influence. Hey, it's Tim from 50 Years of Music with 50-Year-Old White Guys, the comedy podcast you had no idea you needed. Join Ben, Jeff, and me as we continue our musical road trip back through the years and around the globe. See, just when you thought all white guys were like Joe Rogan, you come across three educators trying to remember when we were cool. 50 Years of Music with 50-Year-Old White Guys. Electric acid. Electric acid.